0: Welcome to the Women in Archaeology podcast, a podcast about, for, and by women in the field. This episode originally aired on August 7th, 2016. It's all about opportunities in the field besides digging holes. The discussion includes tips on networking to the different types of jobs there are. The panel includes Chelsea Slaton, Kristen Bastis, Kirsten Lopez, Sarah Head, Jennifer McNiffin, and April Biza. Enjoy the episode!
1: everyone, and welcome to the Women in Archaeology podcast. I am your host, Sarah, with my co-hosts today.
2: This is April Bisa. I'm an assistant professor at Vassar College. I'm a North American archaeologist. Uh, I'm Kristen Bastis. I'm an archaeologist at Missouri State Parks. Hey
3: everybody, I'm Chelsea Slotin. I am a current PhD student at American University. Hi, I'm Kirsten Lopez. I am a grad uh, master's student at Oregon State University.
4: And I am Jenny McNiven. I'm a historical archaeologist, and I'm also the host of the Struggling Archaeologist's Guide to Getting Dirty podcast.
1: Great. Ladies, thank you very much for joining me today. So today we are going to talk about all of the wonderful careers you can have in archaeology that don't revolve around digging holes out in the middle of the woods. I think everything associated with digging holes that's not
5: actually digging holes is something that people forget about sometimes, all of the administrata. That goes along with things such as CRM and government
1: work. So that's a a little bit of a start. Like Kirsten said, there's a lot of other things we can do. A lot of people do not respect the office end of the archaeology. I was in the office end for a long time doing a lot of the data entry. Not necessarily artifact sorting and all that, but the data entry end of it and then the crunching numbers. And that is a very kind of hidden end to that. A lot of people do that as well as other things. I don't think there's a lot of archaeologists that just specifically do data entry, though.
5: Well, no, but you have a lot of the other office stuff, so like GIS. You'll have say in Your some larger maps people or those who do a lot of the processing of paperwork. So say you have a large survey and you have some two hundred shovel probes to process and that were all written on paper. <laughs> <Right>. Exactly. <laughs> Digitizing all that, it does take a, a bit of time.
2: I've been doing animal bone analysis as a consultant for almost twenty years now. And I very rarely actually go to the sites that I've written very long reports on. And one year I analyzed 150,000 animal bones from various sites, mostly in the Southwest for a, a pipeline project. And then also my dissertation that same year, that was a bumper crop year for bone analysis without digging a single hole. (laughs)
1: <laughs> nice. That's pretty good. So what do they do? What happens when you're doing that kind of long distance analysis?
2: Uh, magic happens, of course. <laughs> uh, <laughs> the, the company who has excavated the bones mails them to me and UPS has no idea that they're delivering boxes and boxes of dead animals and plastic bags to my door. <laughs> and then I fill up, uh, I used to do it in my house, so I'd fill up my dining room and my husband was so nice about that. And uh, I did a project for a cave in Nevada. And some of the bags actually contained mummified rats that smelled really, really bad. And I I cataloged them as complete mummified rat. I didn't need to go through every single (laughs) one. So I pretty much left them in the bags. And then when I'm done, I put them back into UPS. And the company pays to mail them to me. I pay to mail them back. And whenever UPS asks for insurance, I'm like, there's no amount of insurance that could replace these the containers of, of bones. And they look at me like I'm crazy and they just take my money and process it through. So (laughs) it's very easy to do remotely as long as you have your own comparative collection, including both bones and, and books. And it can be costly to get it up and running, but once you're up and running, it works very well. And, and if anybody out there is trying to do this, I get contacted constantly for more consulting work than I could ever handle. So if you let me know you're out there, you know, I might be able to send some work your way.
1: So, uh, hey, April, uh, <laughs> you say you've got some bones you need looked at. So that's a great, that's pretty cool. I didn't realize you could, I don't know why I didn't think that could happen, but I didn't realize they would just FedEx you bones.
2: Makes sense. You have to know somebody who vouches for you kind of thing. So sometimes I get contact and say, Oh, so and so recommended you and I didn't know the so and so that they told me about, but I knew the the company that they used to work for or something like that. So
1: So in this kind of situation it's good to build it's good to network and kind of build a word of mouth community there.
2: Yeah. And that's why I got in the habit of going to three conferences a year, which I still keep on doing. And and I know people all over North America. You know, I don't do non North American animals. Um, so I, I work on keeping that network active. And now I work on talking to graduate students who are, you know, working on faunal dissertations because those are the people who I could, you know, give some advice to and, and maybe send information to. I met one woman at the last historical archaeology conference in January, and I've been in contact with her a couple of times about various people. Um, Lots of people want fishbone analysis, and fishbone analysis is not one of my strong points. So I'm always looking for somebody to put in contact with those people so that I don't have to take it on.
1: So there you go, folks. If you're good with fishbones, April B. needs your help. (laughs)
2: I'll put you in contact with other people who need your help.
5: There's other types of analysis I know of that, you know, you have the the faunal, the fish, of course, lots of ceramic in everywhere but the Northwest, I hear.
1: (laughs) Yeah, they apparently didn't do so much with the ceramics out there, or they just have really good people to analyze them out there.
5: No, there just aren't any. It's all basketry, by and large, in the Northwest. It's some fabulous stuff. I tell you, but the preservation record is minimal. So you have by a majority uh, lithic analysts out here. And so Mm -hmm. that's a big thing. So every firm has their lithic analysts or more. (laughs) Every other person is one, which is great because I'm not a lithic
1: analyst. I'm like, oh, Oh, hey, here, (laughs) take a look at me. I know there's a couple large labs that all they do is different types of artifact analysis and They do a lot of the more science-y soil processing and light refraction stuff and all of the really, really cool technologically advanced things that most small firms can't afford to do in-house. Yeah, there's at
5: least one in the Northwest that I know that does their own and also receives from other firms and other agencies blood analysis for
1: things like tools, the blood residue analysis. And that's pretty fun.
5: Well, I know Real. tool
1: use analysis, at least in general, where they examine the edges of a lot of tools um, under an electron microscope now, isn't it?
6: There's also uh, Craig Skinner ran the um, Obsidian lab where you could send your samples and he could tell you where it came from. He could source it because he had, you know, a comparative collection. And I believe he was trying to sell that business. So I hope that someone bought it and that's continuing because it's a really good resource for people who had Obsidian.
1: And along the same lines, if you're somebody who's good on the computer, especially with the GPS or with the ArcGIS, there's a lot of people who like to outsource their, their point plotting of their artifacts. A lot of people trying to get better maps and a lot of companies, small companies can't afford to have a mapping department or a GIS department. So they outsource that. So that's another end of archaeology, computer end of it, pick up cons- called uh, consultation work the same way that Amy uh, April picks up final analysis.
5: Yes. And even outside of working for the firms and sourcing out different work
1: like April does,
5: just things that are not strictly directly rather related to CRM, like education or parks is another place that I've seen a lot of people in archaeology Happily
6: end up, Kristen. I know you're at parks, right? Yep. Yeah, I worked at Sidney Rocks National Reserve and Castle Rock State Park, which are both in Elmo, Idaho, for a little over six years. And now I'm working at the office of Missouri State Parks, and I help the 89 state parks in Missouri with cultural resource issues. Mostly, it's clearances for. They wanna put a memorial bench in along the river or the Katy Trail or they need to replace their shower house or build a new one. So I look at past surveys and sometimes go out to the parks and see uh, you know, if anything's there, do a surface walkover or shovel test. And then write an in house report sometimes and sometimes that report goes to the Shippo. It depends on the funding source. Yeah. Yeah, so there's there's definitely a park and there's also, you know, park interpreters. Archaeologists can sometimes end up there telling the public about a historic site, whether that be a pre contact, you know, like Graham Cave or an actual post contact historic home or other kind of historic site. So there's that too, if you're interested in talking to the public about a specific place, or if you can't move around for some reason, there's a place in parks for a lot of people.
1: We do kind of circle back to the topic of education. Archaeologists, especially modern archaeologists, are very much being pushed into the public eye to interact with the public, to educate the public. But there's also the specific need for direct education, much like Kristen was saying, archaeologists being used at historical sites, at archaeological sites to be interpreters of the site. Um, it's much easier to bring in someone who already knows what's going on, as opposed to trying to train an interpreter who may or may not have a background in archaeology. Yeah, and there's a
5: really fun, in my opinion, fun, a unique perspective that we as archaeologists can bring to public education in parks and in uh, museums where archaeological remains, artifacts, and foundations and such exist. So, you know, you have some foundations out in a national park, you have a little bit of a sign that might say a little bit about it, but have someone having someone there to give you the tour, there's, you know, people can ask questions and feel more interactive with that. And the same goes for museums. I've done that a few times as well. And there's also, you know, going
6: beyond that, there's also the exhibit design, you know, for larger museums. And there's also, you know, smaller museums contract that out sometimes to uh, exhibit design for interested in visual Arts and archaeology, you can get into that sort of a thing, designing archaeological, historical, but then other types of exhibits, too.
4: And I found a lot of museums are really starting to develop uh, education programs of their own which is something that I've had experience in. gone from working in laboratories and museums to being a part of their education program, which is, you know, a lot more of that public archaeology world, which you can get a lot of in the park service. But the, the private world of museums and even research institutions and that sort of place are a really good spot for archaeologists who also are really great with the public, who love to educate. There's opportunities for education in a lot of different places that you wouldn't think to look which I've come across because I've been in some unique situations with my personal life because I can't move around a lot. So you kind of got to explore and find places where you can wedge your way in there and and say, hey, I've got this particular skill. Um, Who wants to work with me? (laughs) And so I've worked with high schools, with um, community colleges, with museums. There's definitely Lots of opportunities, uh, maybe not the academic career you were hoping for <laughs> when you first got into archaeology, but it, as depths don't on the way there, uh, it, they're really great opportunities, especially to share your love of archaeology and history with the public.
3: Yeah, and actually yeah. beyond just mm-hmm. education and interpretation, which is so important, there are the more, I guess, traditional museum careers that one might think of. You know, cur- curation or collections management, and there are a lot of... You know, collections out there that need people to work on them, which either as contract work or if you can get it as full time work, which can be a little bit harder, you know, but it's, it's a good opportunity. And if you need to stay in one place rather than, you know, constantly being out in the fields, collection work is a, a great opportunity. Or if you just get tired of digging, I know that sounds like blasphemy, but it happens. It does happen, you know, so, so those collections definitely exist and They're both at traditional museums. A lot of universities have collections as well. So get a little bit creative looking for for people who are housing collections.
2: And there's work to be done
3: there, too. You were saying, too, about places you
5: might not expect. uh, Older corporations that have been around for a while also often have uh, historic collections. I worked for the Wells Fargo Museum up here in Portland for about a year or so, a little while back in a similar, like, trying to find work locally, because I couldn't move around a whole lot. And that was kind of fascinating, because they have some neat stuff. And that's one of those things, having a collections background. um, I worked for a museum during my undergrad, which gave me some of that experience, the networking and the experiences you pull from things that are slightly outside of, you know, your main track during your university years is becomes really important, as well as things that you do uh, before and after for your side jobs. So, some things that you might not think may be important for some of the museum jobs, I find that there is often retail experience that's desired for those smaller museums, because they may may have one or two people staffing it in a tiny little gift shop, and if no one's ever handled cash before, (laughs) that can get messy. So. That's another small thing that people don't always think about is the networking and integrating, you know, all of the different fields that you've maybe worked in before on the side while you were in college should become important later on as well. Um, April,
6: I I wanted to ask you about the Lost Towns Project and the Port Tobacco Project that you worked on both in Maryland, about how that was funded and structured and um, were those short term positions or were those full time permanent jobs that you had?
2: Lost Towns was run out of the Anne Arundel County Archaeologist Office. In Maryland, almost every county, at least on the central and eastern part of Maryland, has an archaeology office and they're variously funded. And uh, Port Tobacco was funded mostly by Jim Gibb and I writing grants. We got a Preserve America grant before that died. And sometimes Jim and I were not paid at all, and we still paid our crew. So it was almost a labor of love at, at some points. But you know, when you're putting things together and you have things in between other things, sometimes it makes sense to do that sort of stuff. I wouldn't uh, make it a career out of it. Well, let's take a break real quick,
1: and when we come back, let's – shift away from this and start talking a little bit about all of the fun things we can do in act
0: looking for other archaeology podcasts? There's so many to choose from. Why not try Arche fantasies and bust myths surrounding ancient finds and people? Or learn about the study of animal bones and Arche animals? There's also the great Go Dig a Hole and the Ark and Anth podcasts. Don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe to the Women in Archaeology podcast and all of these fun archaeology podcasts that are available on iTunes, Spotify, all over the place. Thanks for listening!
1: We are back and we are still discussing the different careers you can have within the field of archaeology. We have to talk about academia because a lot of people, they go into archaeology and this is actually the career track that they have in mind. And a lot of people, I will say a lot of us don't make it, but those of us that do find that we do different things in academia than maybe we expected that we were going
2: to do. April, would you like to open up for us? Oh, jeez. That was uh, quite the general lead-in of uh, unexpectedness. <laughs> well, I'll, I'll say that I'm coming up for tenure next year. So I'm about to get tenured next year, if all goes well. Um, and this is, thank you. This is the the second college that I've worked at as an assistant professor. So it's been a long time. I finished my PhD in 2007. So to get tenure in 2017 is a long wait in that aspect. And I did my bachelor's in chemistry, actually, and was offered a full-time permanent job in chemistry from the company that I was working for at the time. And that scared the heck out of me that my life was going to be in labs playing with carcinogens all day and never seeing the sun. So I did my bachelor's in anthropology in one year, then went to get my master's did that and left a little uh, disenfranchised with graduate school. Uh, after the master's, I took five years off. I worked and realized that I couldn't do what I wanted to do in archaeology without the PhD. So I went back and finished my PhD in four years because I was refreshed and quite motivated. So I would say that in general, you know, academia, you have to really want it. And even though I was getting my PhD, I wasn't sure that I was going to go the professor track. But it it worked out partially because I had a book that I had published, an edited volume that I had published before I finished my PhD. So that made it a little easier to get noticed on the job hunt. So, you know, publishing is very important even when you're a graduate student if you want the chance to be a professor somewhere. So
1: publish early and publish often.
2: And go to conferences and network and talk to people.
1: And we just did a thing on conferences, so everybody should be up to speed on this conference thing.
2: There's nothing like walk to an interview and knowing the people on the interview panel to help you relax, you know. So one of the other things that I think is really important as a current PhD student, and
3: I also took some time off, I jumped straight from my bachelor's into a master's and then took several years off before deciding to go back for my PhD. Again, realizing that I really needed a PhD to do what I want to do. But I think that having That real world experience is so important in terms of future jobs, in terms of knowing what it is you want to do in academia, what you want to focus on. I think going for a PhD in something or in a field that you've maybe never worked on isn't the smartest idea. So I strongly encourage people to go get some life experience.
2: And you could only advise students well if you know what's out there. Exactly.
4: Sure. And if you, you want to test the waters with teaching without a PhD, there's still op- opportunities for you as, as adjunct, as online. There's a lot of places that will take people with master's degrees to teach online. So it's not, you know, the world isn't completely shut off for, for you if you don't have a PhD yet. So there, there are opportunities.
5: Yeah. I believe community, some community colleges also will take in master's. Some of it depends on the college. Some of it depends on the field. Within that college, but I've seen I have seen that uh, fairly often. So that's
2: another sure. thing. Depending on the just don't expect much for adjunct pay. Yeah, it's no. as low as no. five hundred dollars a class.
4: Yeah, it's not really something you're going to make a career, but it's a good supplement and it's a good way to build up your experience. So let's yeah.
1: let's take a minute here and talk about. I mean, I know that we've got several people either with a PhD or working on their PhD. But let's talk about people who have gone past their bachelor's and they're in their master's and they're like, I'm done. This is where I want to stay. What is open academically to people with a master's only? Because I know what the field, I, I know a little bit of what the field has to offer. But what does academia have to offer someone with just a master's besides adjunct professorships?
2: It generally has to be a very small school a local school, a commuter school kind of thing, someplace that can't afford PhD people, they will be very open to people with a master's. But it's hard to get anywhere with a school that is a a bigger school or residential school, a private school, just a master's. And you definitely won't get a long-term contract. You'll be semester to semester or year to year, usually as a replacement for somebody.
1: Is there any opportunities for research at the master's level or does that have to happen at the PhD level?
2: I think it would probably be that you did your master's on that work and you were at a research one university and that your advisor would keep you on through a grant. I
3: also know some people, and again, it's grants, um, but the the Fulbright scholarships, they have some pre-PhD grants that people can apply to. So if you want to You know, you've got a master's or even a bachelor's. I know some people have uh, applied for these right out of undergrad. You want to get some some work in the field, some experience in the field. You don't necessarily want to go do a PhD right now because it is exhausting. And sometimes it's nice to to take a little bit of a break. You know, go ahead, look into those, apply for those. Oftentimes, universities will have departments that can help you with Grants. So, you know, stay in contact with the university that you did your undergrad or your master's at. See if they can help you out. You can kind of create your own research potentials. So, but that would kind of be a one-off kind of a thing. You're not going to get Fulbright's
6: a year after year. year. That's like a one-year
3: thing. Right. Right. So that's,
6: it's not a, I just want to make sure that people understand it's not a career path. That's a step on your path. Oh, for sure. In your career.
1: So yeah. basically what I'm hearing is, is if you want to do the academic thing, you're, you're either in it for the PhD or you're not really in it.
2: Unless you have strong contacts, somebody who's willing to fight for you. But there's always somebody coming out with another master's the next year. So very few yeah. people are willing to keep you on when you know somebody's right behind you who wants the same opportunity.
1: Let's talk about field-specific specializations tend to happen in academia. And what I mean by that is, in the field, you'll run into people who are like, I'm very up and up on industrial-era archaeology, or I'm very up on pre-contact or post-contact settlement archaeology. But those specialties come about because someone at the academic level has said, this is where I want to focus, and then it becomes a thing. So why don't we just come up, each one of us mention a specialty field in archaeology that we find intriguing. I'm very interested in the industrial archaeology that's coming up. I don't know anything about it. Like, I'm not specialized in it. It's just I know a couple people who are, and I just think the whole idea of going in and doing an archaeological dig in an old industrial factory kind of situation just sounds incredibly fascinating to me.
5: It sounds like pet and shop.
1: (laughs) You should have one of those anyway.
5: Yes, yes, most definitely.
4: I actually did my thesis research in an industrial site. So that is kind of one of my subspecialties, (laughs) oddly enough. So my area of specialty um, or
5: interest rather focuses more on paleo-Indian textiles, basketry, and uh, like uh, environmental interactions. So it's a whole lot of really fun complexities in nuance and a little bit of chemistry.
6: This is Kristen. My thesis project was on a tomb in in Connecticut. And so my master's work kind of sent me down the path of the analysis of human remains, which I it was unexpected. Actually, it kind of was this project that kind of appeared out of nowhere. And I I feel very lucky to have been able to do that. But that has been a long-standing interest of mine is skeletal analysis from any time period.
3: I am also a bone person.
1: <laughs> There's a lot of bones in archaeology. It's okay.
3: Not as many <laughs> as people think. Really? Um, yeah, Well, preservation the- issues are
6: it's, important. <laughs> it's getting to cheer because of the Native American tribal voice that's being exercised now. And it limits the analysis of Native American skeletons in the United States. Uh, So you can, you know, sometimes there'll be an opportunity to work on a historic cemetery if there's a a project where it requires the cemetery to be moved or something like that. Or like mine was a private family that was pretty wealthy. One of the patriarchs of the family at the turn of the 20th century was the founder of the Aetna Insurance Company and the family still retained much of its wealth from that and some other business opportunities and so they were able to spend money to refurbish this tomb of their ancestors.
2: I'm in the uh, enviable position as a professor that I get to do whatever aspect I really want to do as long as I publish on it and, and involve students and things like that. I'm really into the, the contemporary historical archaeology stuff right now and excited to go to Orkney for the chat conference in October. You know, where better to be in October than the top of Scotland on an island? I'm sure it's going to be great weather. I'll, I'll pack a bathing suit or two. <laughs>
1: sunscreen. You'll need all the sunscreen. I'm still jealous.
2: <laughs> you can all come. It's just an open conference. We could have that. We could do a podcast there.
1: Uh, you, you know what? If you got me there, we would totally do a podcast there. But you April, yes. you actually take a really interesting spin on your archaeology. Uh, and I know that I would interviewed you this on Tuesday on the Archie Fantasies podcast. But can you talk just a tiny bit about your uh, special spin on archaeology?
2: My special spin. It's like the secret sauce. It um,
1: is, though, and it's <laughs> cool as hell. I'm sorry.
2: Well, when you, when you do contemporary stuff, uh, a lot of it is ruins. And once you start getting into ruins, you start having to confront that there are contemporary interpretations of these sites that are not guided by archaeologists. So if you have to dig it out of the ground, there's nobody else who's really saying, oh, that over there means this. But when it's an old building in the forest that you've come across and you're writing about, there's somebody else who's come across it before and has local legends about it and things like that. So that has encouraged me to um, seek out the understanding of ghost hunting because everybody wants to talk to me about haunted houses and things like that. So I decided eventually to embrace it. So I've been uh, studying ghost hunting and how that is part of how non-archaeologists understand the past and use the past in their daily lives. So if you ever watch one of these ghost hunting shows, sometimes it's just great to watch them for all the historical information you get. And after a half hour, an hour goes by, you really like haven't really learned anything about ghosts themselves. Like you can't answer the question, is this site haunted? But you've had a good time and you've gotten to see a new place and you've learned some things, whether it be a castle in Orkney maybe. (laughs) Uh, So I've been trying to learn from ghost hunters why they're so successful in getting people to care about abandoned places and to use that through contemporary historical archaeology to to deal with these ruins that I'm looking at.
1: Hmm. Jenny, did you want to add anything? Uh,
4: Well, yeah, I guess we were talking about specialties, right? Yes. Yeah, so as I said before, my thesis research was on an industrial site and I was excavating, actually, the slave community that worked at this industrial site in the early 19th century. So I kind of had to become a quasi-expert in both African-American archaeology and industrial archaeology. Because there really isn't a lot of precedent for slave archaeology in industrial sites at the moment. So I found that that has... It's been interesting in the job market or just with research and stuff like that, because I can kind of go in either direction. But seeing as that I've recently moved to the Southwest, I don't really uh, have any plans at the moment to use either of my specialties out here. So, you know, in in this post-grad world, for me, it's all about sort of being able to be pliable, to be able to reinvent myself and to go in different directions depending on where I'm located and where... You know, where my interests are at the moment. So, um, it, it's good to, to have all of these different specialties and areas that I have experience with. And I think employers recognize and appreciate that. I, I don't think it's, it's bad if you aren't able to continue in one area or another and you, you want to expand your interests and your, and your research goals. I think that's always something to be encouraged. So that's kind of my take on, on specialization right now.
1: So far we've learned that you need a network. Don't over-specialize. Definitely double-specialize or triple-specialize and learn to write grants. That's what, that's what I hear from everybody is just learn to write a grant. Just do it.
2: Just learn to write in general. Well, good writing true. is the one thing that these people who own CRM companies, and when I talk to them, they're always asking how good my students are at writing because they could teach them the archaeology, but they can't teach them how to write.
1: That's true. You're that's not true. doing anybody any favors if you can't put a… Decent
2: paragraph together. Yeah, word. <laughs>
1: yeah. So learn to write. Damn it.
2: Can I say something to Jenny about her move though? Yeah, go for it. Oh yes, please. You're probably one of the very few people with those qualifications in the Southwest. And yeah. these companies every now and then have to do surveys of old airfields and things like that. That there's plenty of people to analyze Pueblo pottery, but you're are you could easily be the go-to person for the more historic stuff that's out there. And they won't care about the details, just the fact that you get excited about the historic stuff that nobody gets excited about in the Southwest because they're excited about all the earlier stuff. I think you're in an enviable position right there as long as you market yourself the right way and make those contacts.
4: You are so right, too. Um, Every job I've had out here, it's been, oh, thank God we've got a historical archaeologist. Everybody asked Jenny about this piece of pottery. uh, Because there's a lot of historical archaeology out here that people are not familiar with because it's not their area of expertise. So that's an excellent point. I'm not complaining about not being able to do a lot of industrial archaeology, but um, my historical skills have definitely come in handy.
5: Yeah, that's one thing that I'm glad you pointed out, Jenny, is the importance and ability to kind of broaden your interests. I mean, most archaeologists, I think, would agree that it may have been difficult to narrow it down going into a graduate (laughs) degree. I've met a few people that are, you know, I have so many interests. I don't know what I want to focus on um, when they're halfway through their master's. So it's one of those things I think most people will be very thankful to hear that. They're not pigeonholing themselves too badly.
1: Absolutely. Okay, well, let's go to a break real quick. And when we come back, let's shift our focus away from academia and into the field some.
0: Did you know that we have a blog? Check out the Women in Archaeology website for a variety of blog posts, as well as past episodes. Interested in supporting the podcast? From the website, you can check out our Patreon account and learn about the different ways to help support the blog and podcast. We can give you a cool sticker in return. Again, thank you for listening.
1: And we are back and we are going to talk about all the fun things you can do in the actual field that aren't necessarily digging an STP. One of my favorite things, one of the things I went back to school for was using remote sensing and ground penetrating radar and the magnetometer. These are really great tools. that are being used in a lot of phase ones now. And if you own your own magnetometer, I suppose you could just go magnetometer the crap out of someone's field for giggles. I know people who do that. <laughs> and, and I'm kind of envious because it's a lot of fun. You can actually magnetometer You can do that in a field, and you never have to dig in the ground, and you can get a pretty reasonable idea of what you're looking at without breaking ground. And so I find that to be a really useful field tool, and it requires a little bit of extra study, so it is kind of a career
3: thing. Yeah. I mean, if we're going to talk about other kind of cool things you can do for digging without actually digging, some of the... Work that's being done with aerial photographs from from satellites or drones is really fascinating because you can, you know, see the outlines of sites. So, for example, the, but, you know, the, and I unfortunately can't remember her name, but there's a woman who has found a potential Viking site. Up at Sarah Parson. Yeah. Yes. Thank you very much. Um, I'm terrible with names. It's a thing I'm working on. You know, the, that site was identified using aerial photos or satellite images. Like, given the technological improvements that we've seen, even in the
4: last five years, there's so much more you can do. Archaeology really isn't thought of by the general public as a a field for tech geeks. Um, you know, we're sort of thought of as more diggy, holy, dirty brutes. But um, there, there is a lot of room in the field for tech geekery. So I think that's a, a really great direction moving forward in the future for people who, who are really into that side of, of, uh, of science and research. Yeah, people who yeah. aren't
1: getting an education in technology and who aren't learning ways to utilize the technology that's coming out. I mean, I, I know there are a lot of people that still have their mind blown by the tremble. And it's like the tremble is the least of your worries at this point.
2: <laughs> yeah. my current research project I'm doing the archaeology of the New York City water system, which is a huge project for one person by herself to do You know, I have students to work with me um, but we don't excavate and we don't collect artifacts we just take GPS tracks and geotagged photos and we do everything in quantum GIS, which is the freeware of GIS so there's no collections other than digital there's no data other than digital That's
1: pretty freaking
5: cool. Crazy.
2: (laughs) (laughs) It's a little scary to some of my friends who haven't been in archaeology for a while that uh, they want to come back and they're a little scared about all the technology stuff. It's really easy to learn if you just sit down and learn it. And the fact that QGIS is free, could be on any platform. You could download it. You could play with it. You could figure it all out. But our museums are filling up and our curation facilities are charging huge box fees and It just takes a lot to manage both running a project and then all the artifact stuff, that being the only full-time archaeologist at Vassar, it's easier for me to do it this way.
1: Well, and speaking of the collections thing, moving into the scanning and the 3D printing now of artifacts and remains at some points, so that they can be returned. That's a developing field as well. I don't know how huge it is, but I know that there are museums that are investing quite a bit into 3D scanning of their collections. And I know that once something's been 3D scanned, it can be 3D printed. So there's an interesting field to look into.
2: Lots of potential ethical problems with that, though.
1: Yeah, there are. It's a developing field. Uh, There's a lot of ethical issues, but there's a lot of things that can be solved with that some ethical issues that can be solved with that as well. And also there's the whole concept of the whole uh, open archaeology thing, uh, making things, reports, artifacts, blah, 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 open to the public or at least open to the rest of the archaeology world.
3: Oh, so with the, the 3D scanning, there's also a differentiation to be made between whether or not you're 3D scanning something for open access, something you're going to try and put online, which some museums are doing Or whether you are 3D scanning two particularly fragile pieces of like pot shards or whatever it is to see like how they fit together. Or, you know, there are things that you can do with a replica of something that you maybe would have um, used a cast for in the past. That 3D scanning is cheaper, potentially less damaging to the artifact. And I think that the the ethical concerns there are very different from if you're having open access 3D scanning.
5: In the museum context, uh, there are a couple of things. So museum world is changing quite a bit at a faster pace than archaeology is. One of those is the digitization, as you mentioned, the 3D digitizing, but even just straight like turning the paper records into Scanning them into yeah. a computer and storing them. Also, taking all of the weird, random '90s digital storage archives and modernizing them, or somehow retrieving the data off of magnetic files, tapes. There's a whole business that's kind of cropped up in contracting. I think someone mentioned before to do curation uh, work in digitizing, just even just taking photos scanning things in as an undergrad I did a lot of that they actually have to purchase or rent equipment in order to do it and I spent many 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 hours because <laughs> it's very time intensive um, especially if you have you know say several hundred thousand artifacts that are being stored and you know it's it's a big budget thing item for larger museums and I'm sure places like the Smithsonian have been up on that. I know they've 3D scanned a lot of things, such as bosses and paintings, that you can take a closer look at online on their website. And so that opens doors for research that isn't academic necessarily. And, you know, that's where you start getting into ethical concerns and such. But it's, it's been a big thing for a little while.
1: But well, it's, it's like I said, it's a developing field. There's going to be roadblocks. There's going to be things that we, we're not even thinking of right now that will pop up later oh, yeah. that we'll yeah. have to address. I know a lot of the field, one of the medical museums opened all of their human remains scans open to the, think you can get them on, oh, anyway, you can get them online. And I know that created a little bit of a hubbub, but it wasn't like they got hijacked. They They opened those up. So it's, yeah. it's going to be a museum-by-museum museum basis. Uh, we're just going to have to use our best judgment on that. And like you mm-hmm. said, the digitization of documents and images and that kind of stuff and the trying to retrieve old data, it's just going to be a, an ongoing process. That one is. It's just converting data into the new format, then converting that format into the next new format, and on and on and on yeah. and on and on and on. And data always- storage is going to mm-hmm. become a, an issue as well.
5: Yes. I mean, it's, it is in a lot of ways considered by most museums more fragile than paper. So there's always still paper copies. I know of very few that have gotten rid of paper copies, if any. I doubt any have. Um, but I could, I'm probably wrong on that. And another note, going back to the mapping and the remote sensing in a way, the UAVs or drones being used for crop reconnaissance, I know that there have been has been some movement, I want to say, in forestry and some government agencies looking into using drones to do archaeological survey from the air, things that may not be noticeable from the ground, which I thought was interesting as well.
1: Well, and of course, there's always the whole, what time of year are you looking, because that'll change. You okay. can't always yeah. afford to get a plane in the air, but you could get a drone up there pretty Yes. Exactly. So other interesting things that happen in the field. Um, We were talking about the tremble and using the GPS to do the marking. And I know that a lot of firms try to overlap that, but it's turning into sort of kind of a career uh, specialization. Because with the companies that can afford to have an in-house group now, they're doing the whole that person is the jeepest person out in the field. And then that person then takes the data back to the office. You know, there's always like the hotel office and that person is then also responsible for downloading the data, correcting the data, getting the data onto a readable map, updating the site maps, uh, the project maps. And that's a full-time thing. And it also requires a lot of specialist and specialized information because Granted, the tremble's not brain surgery, but there are tricks to it. And the software can be kind of temperamental. Uh, so <laughs> knowing how to navigate the glitches of technology that make our lives easier, uh, that is a valuable skill to have when you're out digging. And another thing that I find interesting is the mixing of fields. Uh, I think Kirsten wanted to talk about this a little bit. One of the things... Out in the field digging that I find interesting is how many wetland people who are coming over from, like, environmental science and that kind of stuff who come into digging specifically because we're in a wetland area. So they bring in someone who is completely familiar with what it means to have a wetland and what is going on inside of that wetland. Uh, that happens on pipelines a lot, and I think it's interesting.
5: Yeah, there's some interesting things as far as, you know, I... Everyone, or most everyone, is fascinated by archaeology. And while I love archaeology, and I'm going to continue doing it, um, I think there's a lot of people, especially in their younger years, and they get really excited and then realize it may not be something that they want to do long-term or don't necessarily have. I don't want to say what it takes <laughs> to stay in. I've had dig partners that didn't like dirt, and that's when you start wondering what well, why are you here? <laughs> but that love of history and the love of archaeology itself, I mean, other fields get involved as well. Like you mentioned with GPS becoming a thing, GIS in general is its own field and yes. has its own department in many universities. You also have scientists from various fields, which we talked about archaeologists being specialists in certain sciences. You also have different sciences that work specifically with archaeologists I know there's, you know, DNA labs that specialize in ancient DNA processing. There's, you know, everything from paleobotanists that work with archaeologists or paleoethnobotanists. You have, you know, people that work in uh, geology, geologists that work with archaeologists as well as geoarchaeologists. So there's a lot of crisscrossing. And generally, just, you know, people get handed stuff because we're such a broad field that we will often, you know, say, you meet a really great, oh, let's say a tree person that has this great information that you want to know more about. Well, he does, you know, modern and as well as native trees, maybe a very specific type of botanist that you need their input on. And they, get really excited about your work because everyone does. And so there's always ways to stay connected without having to stay in the field of archeology span specifically as well. So I know that some people are afraid to kind of branch out into other interests and you well, won't lose.
1: <laughs> it's like what April was saying earlier, was she had her degree in chemistry and then switched into a degree in archeology span Exactly. Another person who was following the same kind of path might have taken that chemistry degree and applied it directly to archaeology. And that's where you get a lot of this really interesting, like, microscopic analysis that's being done on everything from like the pollen that they find in the dirt, it's the dirt to the chemical makeup of the dirt, just all kinds of Really interesting, very detailed analysis that can be done on things that we, back in the day, and back when I was in school even, where we were just kind of like, eh, toss it, no one's ever going to do anything with it. And it's like, whoa, whoa, but now we can. And all of those people are very specialized. I'm not saying that they can't go out and do all of the aspects of archaeology, but... It takes a lot of focus to be able to do wear use analysis really well. I mean, and we've moved beyond just knowing how to flint nap. That used to be like the thing. And now we're to the point where, yeah, you can nap it, but we can also put it under this electron microscope and see what's, what it was used to scrape. And you were saying with the DNA analysis, there's a lot of really great stuff coming out of the DNA analysis. So, And there's going to be a lot more really fun stuff coming out of that as it develops as a field.
2: I tried doing that archaeology, chemistry stuff for a while, but I'm too much a big picture person, there you go. and all of the little minute details, I just, I couldn't get into it, and with the animal bones, it's it's kind of that minute detail, but I just, I love bones so much, and I love having the right answer, you know, a squirrel bone is always a squirrel bone, but that piece of pottery might be Schultz-in-sized, it might be richmond in size. you never really know, so, so that's still there, but I think the other side of that, all that science that goes along with archaeology fields is there's all the history stuff too. I do a lot of architectural history. I do a lot of land deed research and you could never dig and still do a lot of historical archaeology and almost every property that is has any CRM done on it, needs somebody to do land deed research. And that is a specialized skill that every office I go to is very, very different on what they have and what's in the deeds. And to be able to read old script, my students can't write in script. Forget about read old script. So that is going to become more and more of a specialty that people are going to be looking for who could read these old documents.
1: Yeah, if you're worried about what's going to become of cursive, it's going to become a field that you could make money in is what it's going to do. (laughs) So let's stop lamenting it and start, you know, making some money off of that. (laughs) (laughs) But no, April, you have an excellent point. Uh, Landscape archaeology wasn't huge when I was in school. I don't feel like it was. I guess I should say my personal experience was that it was not huge. And now that I've gotten out, I see a lot more stuff written about understanding the site as a whole, as opposed to as a square. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's, again, yeah, it's a very specialized thing, being able to read a landscape. We all do it, but... Landscape archaeologists have it like a sixth sense kind of
2: thing. And that helps with all the grant writing and journal articles because it makes it more meaningful to other people. Because exactly. we all understand landscapes and we don't really care what's in your hole at your site, right? Exactly. But if you could tell us about the whole entire landscape, then we'll care what's in Unit 2 and what's in Unit 4. So having that big picture ability, even if you do love the small things like microware analysis. Well,
1: and I knew a guy that, like, his his calling in life was micro analysis. And what I mean is, after you've done the water screening, Ugh. the stuff that comes out in the very finest mesh, he would take a teaspoon of it at a time, put it under the high-powered microscope, and sort it with the finest pair of tweezers I've ever seen in my life. And he would do that <laughs> for eight hours every day, and it didn't fit phase him at all. I would have gone crazy after 15 yeah. minutes, but that's, he loved it. That's what he did.
2: I refuse <laughs> any flotation work. I cannot stand it. <laughs> <that. laughs>
1: I like the flotation machine because yeah. <laughs> I like that. But yeah, I'm with you there. The As April was saying, being able to write in general, to write and research. A lot of people underestimate the amount of research that goes into archaeology. They think that you're just going to go out there and dig some lines and take our artifacts home and write a report, there's a whole lot of research that goes into it. Yeah. And there are some, some companies have a research department and that's all they do. All they do is research.
2: And being organized in your research so yes. that somebody else could write based on what you've collected. So having all your bibliographic information, having folders, having tabs, making it make sense instead of, well, this is all I've figured out for my research paper that's due tomorrow. So I'll just throw it together. Like it has to be clear, coherent, organized research.
5: Yeah. And on that note, actually, I also wanted to mention back sort of the government jobs and it, that's both a loved and hated term. I'm sure for a lot of people, um, but outside or even inside the parks, you have the agencies that hire CRM firms or the agencies that are involved with, say, permitting companies that hire CRM firms. CRM is, you know, you have the companies and the firms and the universities that do the research, but then you also have those that end up being the like government regulated. Right. A lot of government agencies have archaeologists,
6: the Forest Service, the BLM, Um, But also places like the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission, um, because they permit pipelines and, you know, different energy projects that are large scale, which require archaeologists to oversee the contractor's work and make sure that the agency is living up to its commitments on
1: the You still have to wear a safety hat, though, because OSHA.
5: (laughs) (laughs) There's a lot of things because of Otra, and I'm not complaining.
1: I'm not complaining about all of it.
4: Not all of it. Well, I I hope it's not taboo to talk about, uh, you know, there's positions outside of what you would traditionally think of as archaeology. For people who, you know, I try to be a realist on my podcast about this life. It's not easy to get a job sometimes, and it's not easy to get a job in your specialty. It's a competitive field. you know, it shouldn't feel like it's taboo to sort of de-specialize a little bit sometimes when that's the best choice for you. So there's also, you know, even though it's not the topic of this podcast specifically, but there's a world outside of just archaeology that we can work in. Um, if you are trained in anthropology, which all of us should be as a general um, field, then there's an entire world of other opportunities and corporate settings and social services and medicine. And then also a lot of us are very good at research and the historical stuff. And then you've got other opportunities and historical societies, things like that. So it it might be a little bit of a bummer to mention, but there's always other opportunities, even outside of specifically the academic or uh, field world for people with archaeological backgrounds, if Mm -hmm. you want to despecialize a little
1: Uh, Like Kirsten said, networking is key. And I think pretty much everybody has said that at one point during this podcast that the the key to going to to being in this field and getting far in this field and finding your niche niche in this field is networking, Um, going to the conferences, doing podcasts like this. Uh, We're always looking for more hosts uh, so if you ever are in the area and you want to be on a podcast, hit me up and we can see about getting you on. But anytime that you can interact with other archaeologists or other individuals in the areas you want to be in, do it. Put your best foot forward. Put a smile on your face. Get yourself some business cards and go rub some elbows because that's actually going to help you out a whole lot more than just about anything else. Except, you know, actually knowing what you're talking about. <laughs> <laughs> it's also very and important. Yeah, it's important to know what you're talking about. All right. Yeah, no,
5: I was mentioning that it's also fun. It's, you know, don't get too caught up in being intimidated by the people that you're talking with. Everyone's been there, and it's it's fun to, to chit chat,
1: in my opinion. Anyway. Well, and we should spend a little bit of time talking about that, actually. The be whole, because I think, of course, this is a women in archaeology podcast, and We have talked about the imposter syndrome before, and I know that women get hit with that a whole lot more frequently than men do. Um, And that's a socialization thing, in my opinion. So I think men are just socialized to, you know, shake it off. Uh, Women internalize it a whole lot more. So I I think as a woman in the field of archaeology, one of the best things you can do for yourself is to force yourself to go and, and network. And when you start feeling that imposter syndrome creeping up, just shake it off. I I know it sounds rough, and it's way harder to do than it is to say, but nothing's going to serve you better in life than being able to walk into a room and be like, I own this place. And that's the (laughs) thing you have to do.
4: You can sing Taylor Swift if you need to. (laughs) Taylor
1: Swift. (laughs) Shake it off. There you go.
4: (laughs) I think there's a lot of
2: strategy to it that when I see uh, younger people or people who are newer in the field go to conferences, they tend to make the mistake of hanging out with all of their friends and the people they did field school with and so forth. And they form this pod and they go out to some really hip bar that they have to take a cab to. And all the people who could offer them work are back at the hotel, sitting down having like martinis and things. And we can't offer you anything because you're gone. There's also the problem that I've had several times I've tried to find somebody on the internet that is an up and coming person I want to offer an opportunity to and they have no internet presence. You know, everybody should have a web profile that says who you are, what you do, and how to contact you. There was a woman who won an award, you know, an archaeology award at one of these conferences, and she was a graduate student. And I had chatted with her, had a good time talking to her, and I wanted to invite her to come to my college to give a talk. And I can't find her anywhere on the Internet. So I just give up after a while. And that's one of the big pluses of being a member of all these different societies is that I could go search the membership logs if I want to, but you should be easier to find if people want to help you with your networking instead of just, I hang out with my friends and, oh gosh darn, nobody has ever offered me anything. Well, you're not putting yourself in the position as a professional, right? You're hanging out with your friends. That's not networking.
1: That's an excellent point. Um, Would LinkedIn be a good enough web presence or are you looking for something more?
2: A lot of LinkedIn you can't actually see unless you're linked to the person. Gotcha. And it's hard to you can't communicate with somebody who's not connected to you. So people send me requests all the time to connect with me that I don't know at all. And I don't usually respond. So if they're trying to reach me through that, then, you know, they're not going to get to me. But I'm everywhere on the Internet. I mean, I'm the only April Beast on the world. And if you type that in, it's like you're bored of me after the first page. It's like, will you get off the <laughs> Internet and go teach a class? So I think. Anything that shows your personality, like I could find 12 people on LinkedIn in five minutes who do ceramic analysis in the Southwest. Why am I going to offer it to you? Well, now I know that you have all this podcast and media experience and things like that, but did I have to search 12 times to put all that together and figure it out for you? Or do you have a webpage that says, this is who I am, this is what I do. And if you want to you know, offer me something or partner with me, great. Put it here. You know, here's my email. We organize sessions for conferences all the time that we just go out and look for people to invite. And if nobody's inviting you, maybe nobody could find you.
1: I feel like you're talking directly to my soul. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I appreciate that. I'm internalizing this completely. No, I think that's uh, that's an excellent, excellent point. And I think that's a topic that we should definitely tackle in another episode, just in general, just how to get your presence out there so that people can find you. And when we do that topic, April, would you be willing to come back?
2: I think you're sick of me already.
1: I, you know, you're a fascinating person with the ghost hunting and now I, all of this stuff too, I, it's just such a small world.
2: It is. (laughs) That's why networking is so important, Yeah. I, I actually figured out when uh, Kristen and I met, which was so long ago, she probably doesn't even want me to tell anybody, <laughs> but we met at, at a conference okay. and we've been in touch for a long, long time. And we just met through a mutual friend that both of us haven't talked to in a long time, but we talk to each other still. So I wouldn't be talking to you right now if I didn't go to this conference a long time ago and, you know, meet her and keep in touch. There you go.
5: Yep. Actually, I
6: did talk to her, uh, through LinkedIn, actually, she, okay. Uh, her her company is trying to expand into Idaho, and she was asking me for um, people that I knew that were available for consulting work.
5: More um, networking, and, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So
6: definitely, definitely keep touch with your friends. Like, don't ignore your friends at conferences. But okay. definitely, don't form a pod. Don't form a pod. Reach out. Um, and meet a whole range of people. Meet government archaeologists, meet academics, meet people who do your specialty, meet people who do the other things that complement your specialty. So that if you yes. needed to put together a whole team, you have people to draw on that have different specializations than you. Um, that provides amazing cross fertilization for ideas for projects and and also interpreting results from excavations and um, historical research and things like that so definitely knowing a range of people um, but you know do keep in touch with your peer group because you know the older people are going to be gone someday so you'll need your peer group too and also meet younger people go out and when you're at conferences and No, recognize them as oh my god i was there 10 years ago that person is probably so scared to talk to anybody i'm gonna go talk to them
1: younger people are fun to talk to jenny do you have anything you want to add uh go to the hotel bar (laughs) at conferences i would like to point out that jenny's advice is to go to the bar (laughs) yeah
4: (laughs) no um not necessarily if it's not your scene, but like there's other opportunities to network and to to meet people like um, April. I know I met you at I think it was a Twitter meetup at SAA in Austin a couple of years ago, um, which was a really fun afternoon. And I got to meet a whole bunch of people that I now know on Twitter and other social media and I keep up with their careers. And these are all people that, you know, hopefully will be a part of my professional life, you know, forever (laughs) so yeah and then also um, if you have a social media platform making it available to the general public and getting your name out there as someone who people who just love history can go to to contact with um, I don't know just I I answer a lot of fan mail with people with questions about getting into the field people who just love history and want to know what I think about a certain subject and Not everybody, depending on your professional life, has the time to spend a lot of time doing this, but I always think it's really important to stay connected, not just to the other people in our professional circles, but to the public at large, because that's a lot of, you know, why we do this. So, um, yeah, making sure that people have your social profiles out there in the world so that they can contact you is, is super important.
1: Chelsea, you got anything to add?
3: I would just second that Um, we're actually looking at having an upcoming guest who found me on Twitter, Um, actually based off of the information on the host profile page for this podcast. So you never know when something is going to crop up.
6: Right. And um, something that just came came to mind is um, I actually answered some questions for an author that's writing a book. Um, about names of Native American tribes in a certain area at a certain time. And um, so, you know, you can offer um, people outside the profession, you know, who want to make their work better, more accurate, things like that.
1: Kirsten, you want to final thoughts? One thing I just wanted to, to
5: touch on one last time, as far as other venues to poke around, Tribal agencies is something I think that may have gotten passed up and subsumed under the government jobs. There's a lot of well depending on where you are, there can be a lot of work or work associated with tribes as well as cultural museums and other venues that way too but that was a one last bit. I'm sure there's other you know little ten of work relatedness that we haven't touched upon, but that's
1: we can always do another episode at another time cuz this is one of those never ending always evolving topics so right something yeah. to add to that um
6: tribal uh heritage centers so not only yeah. tribal but like in Boise there's a Basque community that has um a significant presence they have some property that they own with a with a visitor center on it um there's also in like Fall River Massachusetts there's a large Portuguese community um, and other types of ethnic heritage centers around the country.
1: We should uh, we should talk about working with other ethnic groups because, like I said, it's a very white field, but we study people who are not, so it would be interesting to have a, a show talking about that kind of an interaction, but ladies, thank you very much for coming on the show with me today. Yeah. Yeah. In April, Absolutely. thank you for being, again, a special guest.
0: Thank you for listening to the Women in Archaeology podcast. Check out Women in Archaeology.com for other episodes and our blog. You can also find us on Twitter under the handle at Women Archies. If you're interested in coming on the show or have ideas for episodes, email us at Women in Archaeology at gmail.com.